This is a massive, massive passage, and um, I was sort of like, oh my goodness, where do I start with this? So I'm just going to pick out one verse, well, one and a bit verses, um, which is verses 26 and 27. Um, I'm just going to read it in the New Living Translation. It says, Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Um, And I I think it raises five questions I'm going to attempt to answer. (laughs) Five. Um, The first is, what's the context? We always need to think, what's the context? Um, Especially if you pick out one or two verses. Um, What are the points of miracles? Why do we follow Jesus? And then what we're concerned about and what we're spending our energy on. Um, and, and this message is primarily for people who are following Jesus in some capacity. So if you haven't, I'd love to have a chat with some, one of us afterwards. Um, but we, we can't unpack these verses without first knowing what's gone before. So the day before, Jesus has fed 5,000 men. Okay, 5,000 men. Uh, Megan McKenna, in a book, Not Counting Women and Children, estimates that the ratio of men to adults and children, uh, to women and children was one to six. <laughs> hey. um, which means that Jesus fed about 30,000, um, a third of the population of Bath. And this is really significant. It's free food. There's the link with manna, which is really explicitly made in the passage. Um, this idea that when the Israelites were going um, on an exodus, they were given manna, free food. And the same way Jesus has given out free food. But also, it's what politicians did at the time. Some things don't change. They would give out free food in the hope of votes and popularity. So it's no surprise that then we hear the people saying, this is surely the king we've been waiting for. We've had a free meal ticket, we've seen a miracle, and he's going to save us from these vile Romans, the oppressing force. And having fed the people and heard this, Jesus quietly slips away. And um, he crosses the Sea of Galilee, walking on the water. And his disciples follow a more traditional route. They take a boat. And then the people wake up the next day and they're they're hungry again. They're going to be hungry again and they realise Jesus is no longer there. Uh, So they take boats and they go and find him on the other side. And they're following Jesus. But they're following him for the wrong motives. For a free meal ticket... Perhaps they're thinking, we haven't got to work again. Perhaps they're just chasing miracles. And yet, before we're harvesting them, I, I understand that. I'd be the same. If I'd have seen an incredible miracle and I hadn't had to buy lunch, I'd want more of it. I might be chasing the miracle rather than following Jesus. And then Jesus says this quite harsh sounding statement. I tell you the truth, you want to be with me because I fed you not because you understood the miraculous signs. The crowd are hungry again, and they think the whole purpose of the miracle is for them to be fed again, full stop. And Jesus is saying, you're not getting it. So it raises the next question, what's the point of miracles? There's four different words in the Greek used for miracles. I do not speak Greek. I've tried to get the pronunciations right. Here we go. The first is wonder. Terrace. Okay, it gives wonder. It's like, wow, you've just broken that bread. And that's, that's a pretty wonderful thing you've done. Second one is dunamis, which is power, showing God's power. The third is ergon, showing the work, 
good work to other people, benevolent, giving good things. But the word here is a sign. The Greek is semeon. This is about a sign. This miracle is about a sign. It's a sign that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. So this section of John is often called the book of signs, about the first 12 chapters. It's seven miracles Jesus does. He changes water into wine. He heals a royal official's son. Heals a paralytic, feeds for 5,000, 30,000, walks on water, heals a blind man from, um, from birth, and he raises Lazarus. And those miracles are great for those people. You know, you get a better wedding, if there's more wine. Um, you've got, um, you've got someone who's able to walk, someone who can see again, someone who can live again, etc. But they are signs. That's the important part. The main point of it is so that we can believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And we know this because John explains it towards the end of the book. In chapter 20, 31, he says, But these miracles are written so that you may continue to believe. So the feeding of 5,000 is really important. With the exception of resurrection, it's the only miracle that's in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. If we read it simply as, Wow, Jesus fed some people, we completely miss the point. The point is, it's a sign that Jesus is God. He's a Messiah, he's a Redeemer. And the people have got the wonder of a miracle, but they haven't got the sign. They're not daft. They've seen this bread and fish be split and gone, whoa, that's incredible, but they failed the sign. They haven't got that part. So why are they following Jesus? Why have they crossed the lake? Because he's given them free food. Not for who he is. That's the introduction. That's the context. I want, I want you to imagine, when I said this at Sanctuary earlier, some people look absolutely terrified when I said this. Imagine a toddler comes round to your house, uh, <laughs> uh, like, like a two-year-old, and um, uh, they, uh, they come round and you, uh, you feed them, um, and the food's going everywhere, including the newly painted walls. Uh, it's gone everywhere, and then um, you give them ice cream. Why is it when you give children ice cream, they have to do that and make it into liquid? I never understand that. But they do that, and it's all over them. And then you wash them up, and you think, this is complete carnage in my house. I'll take them to the park. So you take them to the park, and um, when you're there, they start hopping on one leg because they want a wee. And like, oh, I've got my 20 keys for the toilet. And then they're kind of on the slide, going up and down. And you peel them off the slide, and you finally get them home again. And you're shattered. But all of that's to be expected. Some of that's actually quite endearing. It's quite cute. It's like, hey, that's great. Now imagine if you invited me around to your house and I did that, okay? That would be weird, wouldn't it? Imagine you invite me around, and I, I, I do like ice cream, just for record, but you give me ice cream and I start doing that into a liquid, yeah? And it starts going everywhere and I don't bat an eyelid. I think it's fine, okay? No problems. And then, where's, why you're hopping, I want, you get the idea, okay? Uh, wouldn't that be really weird? Wouldn't that be really unusual? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13:11. he says... When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But now I'm an adult, I've put those things to one side. We've put away the mashing up the ice cream, hopefully hopping on one foot. Maybe the teddy bears, I won't ask. Maybe we've put those away. But are we still following Jesus for immature reasons? You see, the temptation to use Christianity to serve ourselves has always existed. Although Jesus taught us how to live and act in the love of God, we've always found different reasons to follow him. 
I think most of us, just like the people Jesus addresses in this message, first follow Jesus because of what we can get out of it. Hope, peace, salvation, healing, community. And all these can be ours if we follow Jesus. Uh, I made a commitment to follow Jesus when I was nine years old. And it, the reason why I did it is a really unpopular decision. But you can't have a go at me because it's my story when I was nine. Uh, I followed Jesus because I was scared of hell. <laughs> Woo! That's why I did it. It's not why I follow Jesus now. But it's why I made the initial thing. I thought, I do not want separation from God. That's why I made that decision. We shouldn't be surprised when we hear from teenagers brought up in the faith and we say, why are you following Jesus? And they say, because mum and dad do. We shouldn't be like, oh, that's surprising. What's that about? I would argue it's not a great reason later on, but that's their reason. We shouldn't be surprised when new Christians follow Jesus for what they can get out. But maybe we should be surprised when people have been going a long time in the faith and they're still using those reasons. There's two psychologists, A. Aaron and D. Dutton. I could not find their first name. They're very shy about it. But they looked at marriage and they looked at people when they first meet, uh, the reasons why they like each other. And these, all these people, they, they kind of did a survey of, later got married. Okay, So later got married. And when they asked them what the three main reasons were, the first was, <laughs> I'll say it, it was sexual attraction. But when I was at Sanctuary, I said physical attraction. I toned that down. But physical attraction, similarity, which I think is a great idea, and then <laughs> being liked by the other person. <laughs> I, thought it's fair, I thought it was fair enough. They, they were three main reasons, but they are awful reasons for a long marriage if it's going to be a success. Long term, those same people said these things. They said it was about loving the person for who they were, not what you could get out of them. It was about accepting differences. It was about effectively weathering crises. And it was picking your battles. <laughs> I laugh at that, sorry. <laughs> Speak to Elaine. Um, you know, those ones. And um, wouldn't it be weird if we saw two teenagers going out and we said, why are you going out? And they said, oh, well, we've learned to weather our crises together. Wouldn't that be a really strange statement? And you think, warning bells, and that's weird. Wouldn't it be strange if you went to um, a diamond anniversary party and you said, oh, why, why is he married them so well? And they said, oh, the other person likes me. You think that's, that's really strange. But maybe we need to up-level why we follow Jesus. If we're honest, there could be a range of reasons why we do. And sometimes it's subtle, but underneath it is sometimes I'm following Jesus because of what I can get out of it. I googled it. I googled it earlier in the week, and um, these, are, these are direct quotes of why people follow Jesus. I follow Jesus because I'm hoping he can heal my broken marriage and give me a happy home life. I follow Jesus because I struggle with emotional problems, and I, I'm hoping that he can give me inner peace and joy. I follow Jesus because I've got a gambling addiction, and he's helping to keep this at bay. Now, Jesus can do all of that, but that's not a good enough reason to follow him. We should be following because Jesus is Lord over everything. Not just because of what he can do for us. Because here's the problem. This is kind of the crux of what I wanted to talk about. The problem is, if we're following Jesus, what we can get out of it, what happens when we don't? What happens when we don't? You and I will have a faith crisis about things. There are so many things that Jesus promises, uh, Jesus has never promised, but we act like he has. Jesus never promised that we wouldn't experience grief. 
John 16.33, I've taken all the quotes um, from John, by the way, for obvious reasons. In this world, you will have trouble. Jesus never said we have this material wealth, the prosperity teaching. He never said about perfect health in this life. Jesus never said we'd be popular and loved. John 15.18, if the world hates you, remember it hated me first. There are biblical examples of people who completely got this. They were following God for who he is, not what they could get out. My favourite example is Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. So these are Daniel's friends. And they have been exiled, things have gone really you know, really tough for them, and there's a despot king, an absolute crazy king, who decides to make a huge statue, a gold statue, and the idea is you bow down to the statue. And they say, we're not going to do it, we're following God. We do not bow down to something else. And the king gives them one chance, which is really rare. He gave them a chance, Nebuchadnezzar. One more chance to think about it, guys. Bow down or in the furnace. There your choice. And I, I think they had three options at that point. I think the first option is they go, well, we were following God for protection and good stuff. This wasn't part of the deal. Forget it. I'm going to bow down. God's let me down. This wasn't what I was, what, what I was expecting. The second one is I think they could have mixed faith with presumption. The two aren't the same. And just presume God's going to rescue them. Or thirdly, they could say, I don't care what happens, I'm following God. And in Daniel 3, 16 18, it says, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego replied, and they pull no punches at her, Oh Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves to you. <laughs> If you, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God who we, who we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power. Expect that sort of thing. Then, but even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. They follow God for who he is, not what he would provide for them. In his brilliant book, God on Mute, Pete, um, Pete Gregg writes, In the first part of their speech, we see that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego have faith for a miracle. And this is impressive. But then we see that they also have faith for a deeper kind altogether. A faith to endure suffering should the miracle not happen. I wonder what you and I would have done in that situation. I wonder what the people did who'd followed, gone over to the other side of the lake hoping for another free meal ticket and it doesn't happen. We actually know what happens. In verse 66, John writes, at this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Isn't it kind of so life-giving, so incredible when we meet people who unconditionally follow God irrespective of their circumstances? We've got loads of people in this church community. I'm just going to share one with you, and I've checked the people before I do. Um, so I, check, I checked with, we've got three sisters, Jem, um, Jem, Kat and Karen, who go, and go to this church. And um, I've checked this. And a year and a half ago, their dad died, Pete Moody, a lovely man. He died young, and um, it was, you know, very tough time. And the Sunday after he died, I was sat, about where Monica sat now, I like that part of the church, I was sat there. And we, we were doing sung worship, and the three of them came in, and they, and they sat over there, and they worshipped God. 
And I think for all of us who were here at that time, it blew us away. Yeah. They were, they were worshipping God in a, in a, 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 t- a sad, terrible time for them. And they chose to worship God. They were worshipping God for who He was and who He is, not for their circumstances. And I, ch- I chatted to Karen earlier in the week about it, and she said it was really hard for them to walk through that door. It was really hard. We're not talking like naively, big smile on our face all the time. That's just nonsense. That's, you know, we're lying when we do that. But it was really hard. But they wanted to worship God. And I, you know, I just find it astonishing and amazing. There's a, the great Matt Redman song. Blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering. Though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. It's dead easy to sing that song. But they were acting it out at that point. And, you know, I don't know what your worst fear is, and I pray it doesn't happen, but even if your worst fear should come to pass, Jesus is saying, you're going to follow me. That's, that's a challenge. Finally, Jesus says, um, don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. What are we concerned about? Now, I use this rope analogy. I'm, I'm reusing talks. I use this rope analogy uh, recently. It's not mine, but it's a really good one, I think. So here we go. Here's the rope. This part here is when you were born, and that part there is when we die. Okay? Born, die. Unless Jesus comes back. So, before, right. And this here is eternity. And even though the rope doesn't carry on forever, you're going to have to imagine it does. So the rope... Oh, my keyboard goes on forever, like so. Born, born, die, eternity. What are we concerned about? What keeps us awake at night? What do we ruminate over? Food, drink, job, friendships, family, house. Many of these are important. I love how the NLT translates it. It says, don't be so concerned. Don't be so concerned about these. But we are called as Christians to think of eternity. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Do not worry about treasures or money or food or drink or clothes to wear. I used to find that, that passage incredibly irritating. I'm a worrier. I, I worry about stuff. And as soon as someone says, don't worry, I worry. I used to think, oh, it's all right, Jesus is saying, I, I'm worrying about it. And so someone pointed out that later on in the passage, Jesus, as always, tells us how are you going to achieve that. And he says, seek the kingdom of God above all else. <coughs> Live righteously and he'll give you everything you need. You know, we need to pick up every day our cross and consciously and willingly and intentionally say, Jesus, you're going to be number one today. Break it up into days. You're going to be number one today. In all my interactions and my thoughts and my conversations, I want you to be number one. And I'm going to follow you and praise you and live a life pleasing to you, irrespective of the circumstances I find myself in. And what do we spend our energy on? Well, seeking the kingdom of God above all else, and living righteously. Or, loving God, loving your neighbour. That's a primary focus we're spending our energy on. Because that has an effect on this part of the rope. If you're worrying about a new car, it's probably here. But if you've got concern about your neighbours, it's probably all this stuff. 
If you're worrying about your salary, you're probably somewhere here potentially. If you're worried about the people under your care, you're probably over here. If you're worried about your house, you're probably over here. If you're worried about the homeless, we're doing Just Jog tomorrow. If you're worried about the homeless, you're probably over here somewhere. Leonard Ravenhill asks, are the things you are living for worth Christ dying for? We need to be thinking eternally. So let us be a people who follow Jesus because he's Lord, not because of what we can get out of it. Let us be a people who follow Jesus irrespective of our circumstances. Let us be a people who know the difference between the temporal things and the eternal things and act accordingly. And Jesus invites us to make these decisions. He invites us to make him number one and then he makes this eternal promise to us. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Amen.